So good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the workshop entitled Honesty, the Road to Reality. Um, I am one of your co-facilitators today. My name is Michelle, and I'm an alcoholic. And I'm Kim, and I'm a grateful member of Al-Anon. Hi, Kim. So um, I really wanted to do a workshop this year. Actually, I didn't really want to, but every time they asked for volunteers, I was feeling this uh, drive to volunteer about some inventory, maybe step 10, something to do with that. But it wasn't coming together for me. And then suddenly at one of the meetings, they said, well, how about Honesty, the Road Reality? That's a great title. And I was like, hey, I think that has a lot to do with step 10, that maybe that's what I'm kind of being drawn towards. And I whispered to Michelle, would you want to do this with me? And then we could do it together. And now we've been traveling together on the road to reality. So I hope uh, we're going to do some sharing and talking. We're going to give you some sheets to take home. And in the middle, we'll be doing a workshop part where you get to look at some quotes and chat amongst yourselves. And uh, we are recording the session so that you can take the tape home. Uh, I guess CD, welcome to the new millennium. <laughs> but... Uh, so if you share at the microphone, it will be recorded, but we'll have an option in the middle where uh, it can be quiet time. Uh, so don't worry about whether or not it's um, being recorded. Just know that if you do come to share in the microphone that you will be on the CDs. So I want to make that clear up front that we keep the confidence of Elanon, but it is a recorded session. So, you start with your sharing. Okay. So, yes, Loretta. You're very loud and you can hear you really good, but can you really quiet? Okay. Could you maybe pull the mic down or something? Yes. It does not attach, yeah. Oh, okay. So you're just going to have to be loud. Okay. Thank you. And was that a hint I should be quieter? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I'm used to talking to old people, so I really know how to project my voice. So, um, Just a little bit about how I come to be here. I actually started uh, in the 12-step program of Al-Anon about 20... Oh, i, I got to stay close to here, right? Okay. I, I like to wander. I started in Al-Anon probably about 25 years ago or something like that because I was married to an alcoholic. And I went to Al-Anon and Al-Anon saved my life. Uh, I remember I went to my first meeting and it was the Eastview group and they had a newcomers group. And you were they gave you a little spiel about Al-Anon, then they asked if you had any questions. And I said, yes, I do. I want to know if there's any good reason why I shouldn't just stick a knife in between his ribs while he's sleeping and be done with it. And they said, oh, dear, just keep coming back. <laughs> it it Based on that first question, which I'm sure none of you lovely people said at your first Al-Anon, it wasn't much of a surprise to anyone except for me, maybe, that I eventually ended up in Alcoholics Anonymous a few years later. And um, so I'm here 
as someone who has been in Al-Anon, a bit of a backslidden Al-Anon, every year I come to this thing and think, I need to go to more Al-Anon meetings, so hopefully I'll see you out there soon. But uh, the work that I've done here in this workshop has been primarily focused on working the steps through AA, through the program of recovery in AA. So that's how I come to be here. On March 3rd, I will be 20 years sober. And every year at the Roundup, I'm annoyed because I miss out on a big date by two weeks. And I think if only I would have sobered up before that I could stand up in the sobriety countdown. So if that alone doesn't convince you that I qualify as an alcoholic, then nothing will. Okay, and so we balance each other off because I'm the codependent person that's mellow and quiet, and I would never admit to somebody that I wanted to stab my spouse, whether it was true or not, <laughs> before program. Now my sponsor would know if that was the case, and I'm not saying it is. <laughs> um, so I can, I could basically to have you listen to Bryce's story, take out the part about being having a relationship with an exotic dancer or having a beard, and it's pretty much the same kind of story. <laughs> um, I came from a family where just things were off, and I wasn't sure exactly why. Um, we definitely followed the don't feel, don't... I keep thinking that you the mic is on to talk to you. Can you hear me now? Yeah. So don't feel, don't share what's happening. Just don't tell people what's really going on. You have to pretend that life is really great on outside of the home. And then inside, if no one else is there from outside the family, you just kind of wandered around on your, on your own business or under acute surveillance. There was like no in-between of those two points. And you, so you couldn't really be honest outside the home because we had to keep up this idea about what was or was not going on. And you couldn't be honest inside the home because we never knew, I never knew what kind of mood my parents would be in. Would it be a day where things would be funny? Would it be a day where there's a hair trigger temper? Um, so I could often, as a codependent with developing those skills early, I could often tell what kind of mood was in the house and what kind of day it was, but you could never really be sure. So it was safer just not to bother trying to be honest. And in fact, it was, uh, I was often encouraged to be dishonest, to you know say things were good when they weren't, or to say I understood what was going on or I understood a really bizarre explanation for something, you know. Um, and so... I think part of the problem for, for me was I was told I would see something and I would recognize it as a truth, but I was told that's not what's happening. So, or I was told that maybe I wasn't remembering that or maybe I dreamt that. So my sense of reality became really distorted and it wasn't easy to be honest because my perception of reality was not clear and the being honest wasn't rewarded. But at the same time, my family had a really strict moral code about being honest. And so I always did pride myself about being an honest person. And uh, when I came to the program, that was one of my biggest surprises, is finding out how much of my life I lived in deception and or denial, which is a form of dishonesty. And uh, I don't want to uh, go right into... Uh, 
what I'm going to be sharing later, but as part of my uh, history, I guess, and coming to Al-Anon, I thought that um, a lot of what I did in being dishonest was being nice or being kind, that that was just part of keeping good relations and not having conflict, is uh, just saying what the person needed to hear or what kept things going smoothly. And I didn't realize that was dishonesty. I thought that was just the way life was supposed to be, that that was just good manners. Um, And I started to find out in Al-Anon that that's actually a form of denial and a form of dishonesty that is not healthy and it's not uh, good for your fa- for you or being in a unit. Um, and I, it's just, it still is kind of a, a mind blower for me that what I, that my perception was just so skewed. Um, but I think listening, having prepared for this workshop on honesty and listening to the rest of the talks, it was like, wow, this honesty is really a foundational. It's not just a principle of, it, of the program, but it's a foundational piece um, of everything else that we're doing. We, we need to and have that honesty. When we think about that rigorous honesty, it really just underlies all the rest of what I've learned in the program and, and what I need to do. But it still doesn't come easy for me because... Even though I do think of myself as an honest person, I still hate conflict, and I still want to try and have things be running smoothly in in that way, but that's control. So I'm powerless over that side of things, and I need to just keep that every day my inventory. I have to ask myself, have I been honest through this day? Where were the times where I was tempted not to be honest? So... Uh, it's, I think that's what my higher power does is say, you should do this and look at that because that's something that I need to figure out. And I love Al-Anon. I can come here and learn as I do it and not say, I'm a big expert on honesty. I'm just a person in Al-Anon who's tried to figure out honesty on my journey and willing to share it. So, Do you have something to put in there? You want me to go on to the next thing? Okay. All right. So um, we are going to work, talk through the steps and look at the principle of honesty in, in how it comes into each one. As I says on the handout, um, that often when we start to thinking about honesty, we only think about that it's, we need to be honest with others in our communication. We need to, like they say, say what you mean, um, mean what you say. And our slogan, think, is, is it thoughtful, honest, intelligent, necessary, and kind? So honest is right in there. We have to ask ourselves before we communicate, is this an honest thing I'm about to say, or is there something else going on behind it? But once we started looking at honesty, we could see that it really was the, the uh, factor that we try to bring into the fabric of our lives and make all the steps work together. So in step one, two, and three, we build that foundation that helps us to trust that we have a higher power and that we can't afford to be honest, that God cares for us no matter what, and um, it's safe to go ahead and be honest. One of the speakers yesterday mentioned that 
tr or honesty was the main principle of step one. Um, and I think I, I hadn't thought of it that way, and I appreciated hearing that. And to me, it's a that you admit that, so it it, it it is honesty. But for to me, I didn't get to that point till step four. It took me all the way to step four to really dig into my life and become honest with where I was at and what was going on. Um, and so in step four, we make a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. And that requires honesty if we want it to be effective. So I use the blueprint for progress to do my step four. And actually, I tried a bunch of different things, but step four, the very second section in the Blueprint for Progress is honesty. If you read Blueprint for Progress, it starts by saying that step four is an exercise in perception, a way to distinguish between what works in our lives and what is no longer useful or necessary. Being aware of what we did yesterday can help us understand and accept who we are today. So tomorrow, we can become the people we want to be. Initially, our only task is to be as honest as we can. If we are truly honest, we will find out certain things we did wrong and identify some of the people to who we owe amends. So basically, the only criteria of that step is to be honest, to be honest with ourselves and to be, that create, leads to that fearlessness and that searching that we can really dig into it. Um, Al-Anon Works and some other literature uses the term self-honesty. I think that was my problem too, is that it's hard to just look and see for myself, um, how can I be honest with myself? And what have I hidden? What are my hidden secrets? Um, I love that term that the secrets that we keep are not only secrets from others, but secrets from ourself. Um, when I was doing my, uh, getting ready to do my first fifth step, I asked myself, is there a secret that I don't want to tell? And I found that I did have still one secret that I was kind of keeping in my pocket on that. And I thought that is the one that I have to tell for sure. Anything else on my list, if I'm comfortable enough to tell it, it's important for me to tell. But the secret that I still think I should keep to myself is the one that's weighing on me, and I need to, to let it go. In step four, in the past, or sorry, in the uh, blueprint to progress, they ask us to explore dishonesty as a part of our lives in our childhood. How did I fail to tell the truth as a child? I, and that question really got me started at thinking, what do you mean? Like, what, what, what truths can't you tell as a kid? And so that what could I not say about my childhood? What could I not say to my parents? And then it moves into dishonesty as an adult. What kind of specific examples do you have? How have you maybe not been honest? And then this becomes dishonest habits. Um, some of the questions that the past asks, or sorry, progress asks, 
is what stories do I pass on without checking if they are true? And to me, that's the definition of gossip. Um, One of the definitions of gossip. And I was thinking, I didn't think of myself as a gossip, but I was in a family where people didn't talk to each other about things. We talked to, I talked to my brother about something who would talk to my brother who talked to my mother. Um, And so, but we didn't always know if it was true or not. And that's not really being honest. I couldn't say, Mom, I feel like this about this event. I had to complain to my brother who complained to someone else. So we couldn't be honest about it. It was indirect instead of direct. How do I compliment people when I feel they've done a good job? It's like, what's this doing in honesty? But I think it was asking me, am I comfortable enough to speak up and, and give someone praise for something that they've done? For me, as a codependent person, the opposite is more likely true, too. How do I uh, discuss something with a person if I feel like it isn't a good job at work, maybe, or in my home? Um, I would rather do something over for someone than have bothered them or risk them having a confrontation by saying I really didn't, that there was some problem with what had happened or that I was uncomfortable with something. And again, I didn't realize that was dishonesty. Um, How can I tell the difference between the way things look to me and the way they really are? What? (laughs) I was really confused. There's more than one way that things really could be, that how I'm seeing it isn't how it really is. And again, what does that have to do with honesty? Um, and I think it's important in Al-Anon here that I'll put in another plug for getting a sponsor because those, the perspective of your sponsor and the eyeglasses they're wearing, for me that was very different than the ones I brought to, to uh, things. Okay, in my interactions with others, do I tell the truth or do I say what they want to hear most of the time and under what circumstances? So there it was, right in the blueprint progress. I mustn't be the only person who was saying what people want to hear. And I realized I would start sentences by saying, I'll be honest. And that took a lot of courage. Someone once said, when you say I'll be honest, the thing that follows is a lie. But for me, (laughs) when I'd say I'll be honest, what I was really saying was, up to this point, I haven't really been telling you what I think, but I'm about to say the truth and I'm kind of worried Um, so that really shocked me because, like I said, I felt like I was an honest person and here I am. It takes so much courage for me to say, I'm going to be honest about something and realizing that almost all the rest of my participation in conversations had not been an honest exchange. It hadn't been what I thought or felt or really wanted to share. So in my own blueprint, I wrote, it asks you after all these questions to summarize what you find about this area in your life. I wrote, I pride myself on being honest, and in many ways I am. However, in other ways, I duck the truth. It has become so serious that I don't always even recognize the truth. This leads me to living in a false reality. Fear of facing the truth 
has led to isolation and loneliness, as well as inauthentic relationships. So I wasn't expressing how I really felt about things with my friends. I was worried people would leave if I had true um, communication with them. And so those relationships were really tenuous then because people were not um, being with me for who I really was and what was really going on through my mind. Now, once I got all this down, it's on to step five. Well, now that's uh, total requires thorough honesty about ourselves. Um, the new legacy book says, if we are thoroughly honest about ourselves, we can find relief from the crushing hold of disease of alcoholism. The good news for me was God already knew what was going on, so I was easy to be honest with God. I could admit and accept myself because I'd done my step four. But telling another person was going to be a lot harder. I had kept up a facade, just like in my family, and now I was going to go tell somebody that this was fake, that it wasn't true. But the person that had been in Elnon for a long time, she was ready, she heard everything, and she was just totally accepting. And that helped me to accept myself and be able to say, yeah, in Al-Anon, I could be myself. I can be a mess. I can be lost. I can be unsure. And it doesn't matter. In uh, that reaching for personal freedom, someone shared that after step five, I was free to let go of the weight of the past, which allowed me to change my behaviors in the future. Carrying the heavy burden of secrets was wearisome, and putting the burden down was a difficult risk. However, taking the risk to be honest was worth it, because step five is the beginning of a new freedom. And I really felt like that when I walked away from my step five. I felt like I'd been honest. I'd put out that, the secrets that I'd carried, and I was okay, and I could carry on. The questions in the, the new legacy book about step five are, what walls have I built to hide the person I am from others? So this, this mis, miscommunication or these perceptions um, can keep who I really am. Sometimes someone mentioned earlier that wall is an extroversion. For me, it was the same skill I learned as a child which is hiding out in plain sight by being quiet, skirting the edges, and, not, and speaking, being a listener and speaking whatever that person wanted to hear. I could participate in a conversation on anything without actually having an opinion. How does honestly sharing the secrets of my past help me to recover from the emotional damage I endured? And that's a question that we have to just each answer for ourselves. But for me, it was just taking that one step towards putting my visibility back on and just becoming able to step out and say, okay, this is who I am, and this is how, I'm, how I am going to live my life, and this is what I believe. Um, so I find it's still really 
the thing I struggle with most. I wouldn't have thought honesty would have been even on my list. But it's being my real, true self, being my authentic self, and just carrying forward with that in all of my interactions. Being brave enough and trusting enough to let people know the real me, to trust that I can have healthy relationships where people can disagree and I can have a conflict, and if they stay or go, I'll still survive. Um, And to me, that is all related to just having that courage to be honest and having that faith in my higher power from step three that I've always got that care and I've been created in a special way and so that I can be honest about that. And that is my, the power of the program, to create each of us in our own way so that we can each go out and share that power. One of the things that came to my mind when you were speaking, Kim, about honesty was when I first came into Al-Anon and then into AA, um, I really struggled with many, many aspects of these 12 steps. But I did one thing. I gave myself one gift that I think has allowed me to survive and even thrive in my life. And that was I gave myself the gift of being honest in a meeting. A lot of my life, I too grew up in an alcoholic home, and a lot of my life was uh, not, it wasn't safe to say who I was or what was going on in my house. And then when I was living in a violent alcoholic family with a violent alcoholic spouse, I didn't have anybody I could talk to about that. But I made a decision that when I went to the meeting, for that hour, I was going to be honest. And there were times when it was very, very challenging. One of the things I found challenging, and I still sometimes find challenging today, is I'll be in a meeting and I feel pressure to be uplifting or to say something that sounds wise. Does anybody else ever struggle with that in a meeting? So, you know, here's one example of, of what's often happened to me is, um, you know, I, I've joined home groups in AA that didn't have a lot of women. And what happens in AA is that when women start coming to a meeting, more women start coming, right? And then newcomers come, and what ends up happening is if you're a woman with any kind of halfways decent sobriety, you end up sponsoring everybody. So I would go to a meeting, and then I would really want to go there and say, my husband's an idiot, and I felt like drinking, and I can't stand my children, and, you know, this is all insane, I can't stand my life. But I'd be there, and there would be Polly and Mary and Susie, who had about two minutes of sobriety, and I would be like, oh, crap, I can't say anything, right? And then I would leave the meeting and go carrying that stuff. I think Bryson talked yesterday about the backpack, right? And I would carry the backpack. And I still struggle with that now, but for the most part, I gave myself the gift of one hour of honesty when I went to that meeting. And there was times in sobriety when I'd been sober a few years when I had the most crushing depression 
And if any of you have ever suffered from depression, I had the worst depression, and I would go to a meeting, and I would sit there, and I couldn't smile, and I couldn't say hi to anybody, and when it came my turn to talk, a voice in my head would say, Michelle, just say, you'll pass. Just say, I'm Michelle, I'm an alcoholic, and I'll pass. But something made me say, I'm Michelle, I'm an alcoholic, and I feel like I want to die, and I'm scared I'm going to kill myself when this meeting is over. And I said those words, and that honesty kept me alive another day because I wouldn't kill myself after the meeting. And somebody would give me a hug or somebody would help me. And I had a friend who who died several years ago, Harold, and Harold had the worst depression of anyone I've ever met. And that man was so brave. He had 30-some years of sobriety when he died. And he went to meeting week after week after week, and people, you know, judged him and thought he was an idiot and called him, he called himself Old Weird Harold because he was kind of weird. And... He gave me the courage to keep going because I thought if Harold can stay sober week after week when he's got a noose hanging in his garage, I can do it. And that man saved my life. So by giving myself the gift of being honest in a meeting, I gave other people the gift of an open space to be honest too. And like I said, I still struggle with that sometimes. I get caught up in, oh, I've been sober a long time and I need to go to meetings and say something uplifting. Well, you know what? Life isn't always uplifting. And I've had some pretty hard times in sobriety. And I've needed to share that at meetings. I've needed to go to meetings and cry. And you know what? I haven't been judged. People have allowed me to be who I am and to feel what I need to feel. And that's been an amazing gift. But it all started with that one commitment. I'm going to be honest for this one hour in this one room. And that's where it started for me. I wanted to focus just a little bit before we break for our own small group discussions and talk about steps 9 and 10 and how they relate to honesty. As I was preparing for this workshop, it became very clear to me that within AA there's kind of language floating around the rooms that isn't really found in our literature. And Al-Anon people do a much better job, I think, of saying, this is what our literature says. It's not that you, you know, you can't have your own thoughts, but there's a foundation there. Whereas in AA, because we don't like rules, we like to just make up stuff and pretend that, you know, Bill W. said when he said no such thing, right? And let's remember, Bill W. was kind of whacked. Let's just keep that in mind, right? The guy had issues. So... Step eight and nine in, in, in AA and in our 12 steps that talks about it. I've heard people say in meetings, and I'm probably going to get myself in trouble, but that's okay. I've heard people say in meetings, well, I don't have to make amends to that person. If God puts them in my path, I'll do it. Like God is going to get a chartered helicopter and take the person from grade five who you beat up every day and drop them right in your path and then you'll do the amend. And the literature actually says that we need to, A, pray for willingness to make amends to that person, and B, summon up our courage, and it's the words say, head straight for them. 
in all honesty, to make that amend. Wow, that sucks. I would rather wait around for that old boyfriend I had who lives in Medicine Hat to just show up in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, and I'll make my amend. But that's not what it says that we need to do. And it's very clear that the only reason we don't make an amend is if it's going to harm, harm someone other than myself. And I'm really glad that Sean um, shared his story about Revenue Canada, because I've been his friend a long time, and he did it. He paid that sucker off bit by bit by bit. And uh, he took any crappy job that he could take in order to pay that bill. And that's what the program teaches us. We don't make amends just when it's expedient or convenient. We do it because it's the right thing to do. Step nine is also not designed for us to be free of guilt or to tie up loose ends in our life that might be bothering us when we close our eyes. Again, it says that the real purpose of step nine is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. Working these 12 steps is so much easier when it's just about making me feel good. But here they are trying to say that the real reason to work the steps of recovery is so that we can be of usefulness to God and to other people. I don't know about you, but I like people as a concept. (laughs) Not so much as a reality. And yet, this is what our program asks us to do, to ask ourselves, how can I be useful to the people around me? It is in the process of doing step nine that we begin to experience the promises of the program that are found in the big book of AA. And I'm not sure exactly what the Al-Anon promises or equivalent might be, But one of the biggest things that's come true for me is the promise that says we will intuitively know how to handle situations that used to baffle us. And for me, that has been the greatest gift of my recovery is that some of the time, in fact, most of the time now, I know how to do the right thing. I know how to do the right thing. And doing the right thing always involves being loving. Now, I'm not saying I always do the right thing. I just know how to do the right thing. (laughs) And more times than I used to, I actually sometimes do the right thing. I don't have Kim's problem about I don't want to say anything that nobody does things right. I'm like, this sink is a mess. There's hairs in here and pick up your dirty laundry. And so I have to learn other issues about saying things in love. But, you know, progress, not perfection, right? Step 10, when we, is the process of continuing to take personal inventory and it, um, the, the literature talks about doing step 10 in a number of different ways, a spot check inventory during the day. And it tells us to do it whenever we feel restless, irritable, and discontent. And I don't know about you, but I can feel restless, irritable, and discontent and be capable of ruining my life before I even have my first cup of coffee. 
some days, right? Step 10 is designed to prevent us from having an emotional hangover, from dealing with those things that we did yesterday, those things we said and did that we're sorry for. The spot check inventory, the moment of stopping during the day to say, hey, wait a minute, why don't I feel good? What's going on with me? Helps us to stop and say, my life, my day is not on the track that I want it to be, and I need to do something different. AA also invites us to do a daily inventory at the end of the day, to go to bed and to think about how we spent our day about our thoughts and our behavior. What did we do? Where might we need to change things? Where did we critique or put down someone else and try to hide it by saying we're just trying to be helpful or give constructive criticism? It also tells us that one of the greatest dangers that we have is to is the tendency to hide a bad motive under a good motive. And when I read that, it was like you took a dagger right to my heart because I am the queen of covering up bad stuff with something that sounds real pretty. I think it's also important in the, on the road to reality to be willing to continue to take stock of our life as a whole. These are some of the questions that I ask myself on an ongoing basis as I try and work steps 10, 11, and 12. One, do I spend a good amount of time on things that make the world a more loving place? Two, where am I spending energy on people, places, and things that are draining rather than life-giving? Three, do I appreciate what I have rather than on focusing on what I don't have? Four, am I committed to participating in a community? Examples are a 12-step home group or service work as a volunteer, as a member of a faith community or some kind of community organization. This is a big one for me as, a, as an Al-Anon person, five, am I willing to receive as well as to give? And six, is my higher power's opinion of me the one that I value most in my life? As, as we are willing to ask ourselves these questions and to honestly reflect on them, we find ourselves well into a spiritual program of living and developing what I call God consciousness or a God-centered life where our higher power is the one that helps us to be honest and to live the lives that we are called to live. Really appreciated what Sean said. If I thought that... uh I could have guessed in those first years of recovery, if I would have written down what I asked for myself, it certainly would have looked a lot different than what I have today. The last thing I want to say about that before we break into our groups for some discussion is that honesty for me 
and a willingness to serve God and my fellows has been the only cure that I've ever found for my other major disease, which is the disease of self-pity. I fight self-pity every single day of my life. And I have more or less reasons than everyone else to feel sorry for myself. But working the steps of these programs of these of these programs tells me that if I want to live the God-centered life, I must be honest and I must fit myself for maximum service of God to my fellows. And I can't do that laying on the couch feeling sorry for myself and nursing resentment like a good bottle of vodka. We would invite people to come up from their tables and to share. And we have a few minutes to do that. So if someone would like to come forward and share some wisdom from their table, that would be lovely. Let's get this party started. Okay, I'm not really sure what my table talked about, so... (laughs) We were talking about honesty. Um, And how freeing it is when you can be honest, but, you know, it definitely came up about how safe it is in a meeting to be honest, because you know you have a pretty good idea of what the reaction will be, right? And it's not going to be, oh, I told you so, you know, any of that, right? There's no judgment. So, you know, when you're, when I'm in my outside the room world, you know, where I spend most of my life, like the rest of you, it's really hard to sometimes be honest and not think about, not overthink it maybe, what's the reaction going to be? How are they going to take it, right? So it's about trust, trusting that it's okay, you know, whatever their reaction is, if I'm being truthful and it's not intended to be, I'm not intending to hurt somebody, then being honest feels good. And I'm not responsible for how their reaction will be in that, you know, when you go to make an amends to somebody, if I'm honest about what I did and what I'm owning, I'm not really doing it to get forgiveness or absolution. I'm just owning my crap in an honest way and I'm not responsible for how the other person takes that and you know if I don't do it with malice and ill intent um, and I trust that my higher power has my back then it's okay for me to be honest in that situation and our quote had something about courage our second one so it takes a lot of courage to be honest outside of these rooms at least it does for for me but it comes down to trusting that everything will be the way it's supposed to be so thanks Um, we had the first two quotes and uh, a few things that came out at our table. Uh, it's interesting, a few times this weekend we've heard about um, a disease of perception and um, just kind of interesting how we tend to talk a lot in, in meetings or in our literature about denial and look at it from that view. And that's sort of the opposite of honesty, right? But to use the word honesty compared to the word of denial, it's still the same issue, but it's just looking at it through a different lens from the different side. And I thought that was kind of an interesting way to look at the same issue and then maybe see it and think about it differently because otherwise you're always coming at it at the same direction. We also talked at our table about how, you know, the idea of being dishonest um, 
there was times in our lives where that was necessary. It was survival. And so at that, those points in, in our childhood, um, it was necessary and it wasn't a bad thing. It was just what we needed to do. And, and we learned, you know, when it wasn't safe, to be honest, because we were with, you know, around people that didn't make that that safe and so to be in groups where it is safe and to learn that you know we're not those same children anymore that we can learn a new way and um with our our last quote we talked the idea that uh being honest is less harmful than being dishonest and from an al-anon perspective i think sometimes um when we first come into program we can see everything that the alcoholic in our life did and the carnage that they left behind and i think sometimes we forget about how damaging our behaviors can be and it's easy for us to justify well we did that because of that person but um you know it's sharing about how i look back on when my kids were little and i have this i used to have this image of me being super mom i felt like i was a married single mother and so i would rush home from work and i held a full-time job and i put food on the table and i paid the bills that weren't being paid and i um (laughs) would stay up all night you know to make sure that you know when he came home and left the car running in the middle of the road i would go park it and um you know and and get the kids to all their activities and and you know and I had you know I was like I was a superwoman and yet my my kids were talking one day and they were talking about oh we remember all the yelling <laughs> and I'm like you know they didn't remember they didn't have this vision of this mom with the the cape and the big s swooping in and feeding them and making sure you know like they didn't even really realize their dad was drinking cuz he was sleeping when they saw him you know they saw a crazy mom going stop quiet you know and and go outside and don't wake up your father and get your shoes on. We got to go to, you know, and they just saw this craziness and I hadn't seen that part of it because I wasn't being honest about the thinking problem that I had. So, um, I just came and said something earlier on that just has resonated with me. Um, what stories do we pass on without checking if it's true? And, um, I started thinking about how I do that with myself. I have a self-image issue. I've had it my whole life. I was told that I'm fat and, and, and unattractive and that people only like people who are attractive and thin and nice. And so I believed that. And I perpetuated that to everybody that I saw. I perpetuated that truth out, um, you know, believing that people didn't like me, believing that I wasn't good enough, believing that my parents thought that of me as well. And they, I mean, they love me to the best that they're physically capable of doing. What they told me and what was true were different things. And sometimes we grab hold of these truths that we, you know, we're so sure that they're true. But again, it's just that, that shift in our perspective, right? It's a shift in, I don't know, that can make me think of how sometimes we tell ourselves lies that we're so sure are true from, from a time that is long past and, and isn't true anymore. So anyways. I tried to get out of this. Um, problem is when you're with two other alcoholics, A, you don't get notes like you do at every other table. <laughs> but hey, um, the good with the bad, right? Uh, we actually started by, we focused on the number four, the quote around respecting others 
um, by swallowing our thoughts and feelings about potentially hot topics. And we started talking about motivations. You know, why is it that we are swallowing these, these, these what we think are truths, right? Um, is it a, is there something underneath that, that we're layering? Let's be honest about this. And really you're just trying to get whatever points you're trying to score in underneath, like you were talking about. Um, also about motivations, like, and I think of myself, you know, emotionally frozen. We, we also talked about how men and women in general, I was mentioning a book that I had read that I, it was pretty um, important to me about the seven principles of marriage. And it, it talked about how men and women, as a generalization, uh, react differently. And we talked about communication. And so we really focused on the how and, and how with me in particular, when there's something hot, there's an issue. It's like uh, it, it, they call it in the book being flooded and my emotions, like I get very, my adrenaline jacks right up. And then it takes me a long time to come down. Whereas not so much with women as a generalization, they're able to get into the kind of the, the, the zone to speak a lot quicker. Now that's different. That is a generalization, but it certainly is true for me. And so the how of communication and the ability to connect without either going to the two extremes of either not saying anything or blowing um, that's where the challenge is, is to, to be able to do that. We talked about some ways that worked for, for us. Like one way that I, that works is writing stuff down the same kind of idea of the program, right? Where you take that little mini inventory and you, and you take that time away. Of course, the trick being, then you have to actually come back to it. You can't let the time go on too far and then just kind of go, Oh, well that's passed. Now I'm sure I'm, that's done with, that's never going to come up again. Uh, <laughs> strangely enough, that's where resentment seems to lie. Right. Um, and, and in terms of the risk that's associated with that, the other thing we talked about at the end was around that. There's a couple of challenges with that. First of all, around the how of communication, but also what is that truth? And it relates to the second one about facing painful truths. Because sometimes you, there, there's a truth that you will find on one day that seems completely true. That's, that's my reality for that day. But then all of a sudden, a little time passes, and that's not the same truth anymore because circumstances have changed or something else is going on in your life. And so being able to see that truth for what it is is sometimes very challenging, and especially the painful ones to admit them and then to continue to admit them are not always easy. And and so, you know, I don't know. Because we're alcoholics, we may have gone way off topic, but uh, <laughs> but that's kind of where we wound up um, around honesty and trying to figure that middle path from the extremes that often um, pull us in either direction in our lives. So. We have time for one more. I'm really sleep deprived, so this is going to sound amazingly brilliant or like babbling nonsense. So you can tell me later how I did. <laughs> so we discussed the third, um, the third quote. Um, so at our table, we discussed growing up in a dysfunctional home. Um, that's what we were taught. We were taught to rationalize and to minimize and not be honest, like you're not allowed to have feelings. So um, we always had people distorting our reality. So it's hard to be honest with yourself when you don't trust yourself to know the truth. Um, when you see what you see and other people tell you, no, that's not what you're seeing. <laughs> no, I'm not drunk. I'm just whatever. Um yeah, we don't 
we don't tend to trust ourselves because that's not what we are taught. Um, so we also grow up and perpetuate. And when our parents ask us, what were you doing? We'll give them half the truth. We'll tell them what they want to hear. <laughs> While I was out with these people doing this, and you leave out the 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 part they don't want to hear. Um, so I I realized the finally the harm once I got into a program, the harm that I was doing to others by not uh, facing the truth. Um, I had a difficult time with my daughter this year because I found out that she wasn't the person I thought she was. That was devastating to me. So um, if I just buried my head in the sand, it wouldn't go away. And, of course, I'm causing her harm. So it was an excellent opportunity to to share and be honest. And to I, I thank programs so much for being able to be that parent that... Um, I want to be, and yeah, I'll keep working on it. But yeah, um, the ego obviously is there for self-preservation. So that's something that we have to fight all the time. Um, And if we pay really close attention, life always gives us lessons and shows us who we are. So we need to use program and learn to trust that. So that's what we shared at our table. Thank you. Well, thank you, everyone. It sounded like some really good discussion and sharing, and uh, thanks for joining us today. Michelle is going to lead us in a little closing closing ritual for us to take out with us and to wrap up before we uh, go on our separate ways to meet again later. So thank you very much. So each of you should have a either a rock or a seashell, and I think Jill needs one as well, Kim. So um, if you could just take that rock or that seashell, and I thought we'd close with just a bit of a, a little meditation that hopefully will tie together what we've been discussing this afternoon and indeed over the last day and a half and have something to carry into our lives as we go. So I would invite you to hold your rock or your seashell, and if you're comfortable, you can close your eyes if it helps you to focus, and and if not, do as you feel comfortable. So the, the rock or the seashell is hard on the outside. It is a lot like us. We often walk around in this world with a hard shell. But in my culture, we believe that everything has spirit and that everything is alive. Of course, in seashells, animals and creatures live inside of them, and they, they live and they reproduce and they have full lives that many of us don't know about. But so too does the rock. Living things grow on the rock and grow inside the rock. It is a home for insects, and other little creatures. We can continue to present to the world this hard shell, and yet there are people in these rooms and our power greater than ourselves who see inside of us, who see all the beauty and the truth and the the gifts and the strengths that we have, 
the way that we were wonderfully and perfectly made. I would invite you as you go into the world to allow yourself to go into new places where people can see beyond the shell that you present to the world and to know that each one of us is beloved, beloved by that power greater than ourselves who has made us perfect in form and in function. Thank you.